Today, I'm excited to open with you Jonah chapter 2. So my name is Chad Kinser, if you're a guest with us, and uh, I could serve as our lead pastor here at Frontline downtown. And opening the Bible today and continuing our series in Jonah 2 is a, is a deep privilege of mine. So if you've got a Bible, turn there. We'll be there in just a second. Last week, we kicked off this series, and uh, if you were here last week, you know that Jonah is not the story you were sold in VBS, right? Uh, it's not a VeggieTales kind of story, even though they've made their best attempt at doing it, right? Uh, it, VeggieTales is a gritty book. Uh, uh, VeggieTales. Um, <laughs> you guys are going to let me just do that. You guys are just going to let me do that. Hey, Jonah is a gritty book. VeggieTales is cheesy. Uh, Jonah's gritty. Uh, Jonah is, um, in many ways, I feel like as we've been doing this, I, I have felt, and I even said this this morning, I feel like as I'm studying this book afresh and we're preaching through it, it's like I've never even read the book of Jonah before. It's like I've completely misunderstood what's going on. It's been billed to us as this sort of moral story where, hey, don't run from God. He's going to put you in timeout. Then you're going to pray, and then you'll obey, and then you'll move on with life. Like, that is not at all what's happening in the book of Jonah. So if that's your understanding, uh, it's going to be turned on its head when you actually look at the text, right? So most of us just boil it down to a fish story. It's much bigger than that. But today we are going to land in Jonah 2, where Jonah is actually in the belly of the fish. He's going to pray a prayer, and here's what we're going to see today. God's going to lift the veil. He's going to take us behind the curtain and expose all kinds of religious games that we play. Uh, and so this, this text has messed me up all week, and I've been praying like crazy that God would use it in, in our life to, to shape us more like Jesus. So here's how I want to begin. Uh, I want to read um, Jonah 2. I want to start in, in chapter 1, verse 17, just kind of give us a running start from last week. So 1.17 all the way down to 3.2, and uh, then I'll pray, and we'll jump in from there. If you don't have a Bible, the, the words will be on the screen. The voice of Jesus speaks to us like this, Jonah 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of this fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, and into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all of your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were even wrapped around my head and the roots of the mountains. And, and, and I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. And those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. And what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Let's pray together. God, I pray you would help us now as we open your word. We can't do this on our own. We will not understand on our own. This will simply be 
black ink on a white page, um, God, unless you come, cause it to come alive in our hearts. We confess together that your word is living and active. We confess together that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. But we also confess that it is dull unless you cause it to come alive in our hearts. And so, God, would you, would you cause your living and active, sharp word to divide us, to cut us, to lead us toward Jesus, and to confess him as Lord increasingly, even today. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I uh, studied this week and got ready for this sermon, uh, my mind was drifting toward, and this is, this is going to sound crazy to you, but it really did. My mind was drifting toward those old, uh, real cheesy, uh, Jeff Foxworthy redneck jokes, uh, where you, you know you're a redneck if, and then I thought about just kind of saying a few of them that were my favorites from back in the day, but then I thought, we're going to get derailed in a hurry uh, if I do that. And so, but the whole point of those jokes, right, was to say that there is things you can say, observations you can make about any given subculture. You can do this with rednecks or any given subculture in society. Things you can say, things we all observe that regardless of kind of the exterior we want to present, regardless of the best version of ourselves that we want to present, you can say, if this is true about you, well, then this is who you are in sort of a disarming way that causes all of us to laugh, right? And so no one's offended at a redneck joke because they know it's true and they laugh and they go on about their day, right? But here's what I want to say. It got me thinking... What would, you, what would you put in the place of that through a redneck joke for like church people? Like, you know you're a church person if, or specifically self-righteous. You know you're self-righteous if. I got to thinking about these, so here's a few of them just to kind of get the, prime, get the pump primed, you know? So um, if you were in group prayer and you zone out and you've realized you've zoned out and then you zone back in or you engage again and sort of to convince everyone around you as though they were thinking about you, that you didn't zone out and that you've been present all the time, you give that moan of agreement, you know, mmm, that's good. <laughs> Just to prove that you're back in, you're self-righteous, right? If Christian t-shirts are your primary evangelism strategy, you might be self-righteous, right? So growing up, I had this shirt that was, uh, it said cops on the front, with like the, the font of the TV show, and on the back, it said a real big cops, you know, and underneath it, it said, Christians obediently preaching, the God, preaching uh, salvation. And uh, I thought, man, I am like the boldest, most radical Christian in the Oklahoma City has ever seen. I'm cops, you know, and I wasn't preaching anything. I was just wearing a stupid t-shirt from Mardell's. Uh, they sell great t-shirts, by the way. Um, but that, if, you, if that's your primary evangelism strategy, you might be self-righteous. Um, if, uh, if you spend more time trying to capture just the right Instagram pic of your morning Bible study than actually reading the Bible, hashtag quiet time, hashtag coffee in the word, hashtag daily bread, right? <laughs> you might be self-righteous. You see what I mean? Like there are ways in which there are, regardless of whatever we want to present on the outside, whatever version of ourself we want to present, there are ways in which we can acknowledge other things that are less becoming about ourselves we'd rather no one acknowledge or talk about, right? And, and that has everything to do with what we're talking about in Jonah chapter 2. Where we pick up today in Jonah 2, Jonah is going to pray a prayer. And Jonah's prayer has all the trappings of like a prayer that you would want to buy at Mardell and have it on your wall as art in your house, right? It looks, it has all the right appearances. It's going to sound right. I just read it moments ago, and you're probably thinking, that's a wonderful prayer, right? It's got all the trappings. It looks right. It sounds right. 
But at its heart, as we're going to see today, it's shallow and it's hollow and it's completely abstracted from the mission in the heart of God. Completely abstracted. And so as we roll through that, that's important for us because if you remember last week, Jonah is an example for us. The whole book of Jonah is an example, and it's not an example that we want to follow. The reason that this is important for us and the reason that the book of Jonah is an example is because the book of Jonah shows up to us like a mirror. Like all of us want to read Jonah and go, that's not me. Newsflash, it is you. It's all of us, right? It's, it's all of us. So when you read the book of Jonah, it's less like we're reading a story about a guy who lived a few thousand years ago who was a prophet of God. It's more like this story is reading us. This story is reading our mail. This story is stepping behind the veil of our own baggage and exposing it, right? This is not a story about Jonah, although it is. It does capture his life. His life speaks into ours, and we find ourselves in the same place, right? So there's three movements that I want us to sort of walk through today as we capture his prayer. The first one is I want to look at the content of his prayer. So what does Jonah say? In his prayer, what does he say, right? That's the first thing I want to look at. The second thing is, I want to look at the problem of his prayer, because there's some massive problems with his prayer. And so I want to look at what does he say, but then I also want to look at what is he not saying? What is he not saying? And then the last thing I want to do is look at, so how does God respond? Like, what does God do with Jonah? And then if, if Jonah's a mirror to us, if we're seeing our own reflection in, in this book, then what does God do with us? What does God do with Jonah? And then what does God do with us? So the first one, look at the content of his prayer. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So let's stop there for a second. Just a couple of comments on what's going on here. This is one of those verses. This is one of those passages of the Bible. This is obviously a fantastical event, right? Jonah is in the belly of a fish. Like, that's not normal, right? In case you were kind of wondering, oh, yeah, this is like everyday news. No, that's not normal. People don't stay in fishes for three days and three nights. People don't stay in fishes at all, ever. So he's in the belly of a fish. It's one of those fantastical events in the Bible, right? So this is one of those events that people want to debate about, they want to argue about, they want to dissect and go, is this allegory? Should we even believe this at all? You see what I'm saying? The Bible shouldn't even be believed. There's a guy who lived in a fish for three days. Really, you believe that? Right? This is one of those moments, right? So you could, you could capture this moment along with other ones like uh, the Red Sea splitting, uh, creation in six days, uh, the sun standing still in the Old Testament. You, you could do all that kind of stuff. And, and so here's what I want to say about that. This is a popular conversation. And, and those conversations have their place, by the way. Like, like they, they have their place. They're worth engaging. They're worth having. And, and you're not undermining the authority of the Bible if you question when you read verse 1 of chapter 2. He's in the belly of a fish. That's weird. That's strange. Let's think about that. When you read the Bible, God is never asking any of us to turn our brains off. Like, like it, Christianity is not uh, checking your intellect at the door. It's not what's going on, right? So that, then how do you land on a passage like this? Like, what do you do with a passage like this? This is not the point of where we're going, but I think it's important to address just for a second. So, so let me tell you where I land. Go to, go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, because Jesus is going to speak about Jonah, and what Jesus says about this is going to give us uh, a helpful way to interpret what's happening and how to, th how to think about the fish story. Matthew 12, uh, the words will be on the screen too, verse 38. 
He says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So he's talking about Jonah, right? For just as Jonah, look at what he says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So do you hear what Jesus just said? He speaks matter of fact about the three days and the three nights Jonah was in the fish. He speaks so matter-of-fact, he reads it so literally that he uses the same kind of parallel to foreshadow his very own resurrection from the dead. And so when Jesus reads Jonah, it's literal. Like, that's how Jesus reads Jonah. That's how Jesus understands Jonah. That's how Jesus, the pre-incarnate Son of God, before he came to the earth, governing the universe, ordained the fish to swallow Jonah. So Jesus reads it as a literal three days and three nights, so much so that he speaks of his very own literal resurrection in the same way, right? And so here's the thing. When we read Jonah as literal, we're not going far out there in a kind of intellectual exercise any more than we're going far out when we believe and have assurance of the literal resurrection of Jesus. Like our imaginations can approach this text in Jonah 2 the very same way. We're in safe company in reading it this way. And so, and so when, you, um, when you have these conversations, and I have them sometimes because I'm a, I'm a pastor and people want to argue about this kind of stuff, and, and here's kind of how I land on it. I'm less concerned in arguing about Jonah 2 and like the, the survivability, if you can even say that word, uh, of, of a fish for three days and three nights. Like I'm less concerned about a discovery documentary on this, and I'm way more concerned with what you do with a homeless Jewish man who claimed to be the son of God, was killed for it, came back from the dead, and he's now the king of the world. Like, what you do with that is a lot bigger deal than what you do with Jonah. What you do with Jesus is a lot bigger. Believing that is way crazier than anything to do with Jonah, right? And then when you see the authority of God in the person of Jesus, in everything that Jesus did, then things like Jonah are a lot more clear, right? Things like a fish story was like, well, of course. He was raised from the dead, right? And whatever you say goes. It's kind of a rule in the universe. And so this is what we're doing in Jonah chapter 2. We're looking at a prayer that was prayed literally in a fish. So I want to look at the content of his prayer. Now here's the deal. We're showing up at his prayer. I don't know how long he's been in the fish. I'm not sure if this was day one I'm not sure if this was day two or day three. We don't get that data, right? But somewhere along those three days, Jonah decides to pray. Of course he did. Of course you would, right? No one wants to be there. Uh, No one wants to be there. So he's been running from God. He's been rebelling against God. He's been playing games on God. God gives him a fish to sort of uh, spike up his attention to show him how ridiculous he's being. And then at some point along the way, he goes, okay, God, I'll throw you a bone. Here's my prayer. And so he prays. And there's some actually really beautiful things in his prayer. And just a few of them that I want to point out. In verses 1 and 7, Jonah speaks of the attentiveness of God to hear our prayers. 
in distress. Look at verse 1. He says, or verse 2, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. He repeats something almost exactly the same in verse 7. God is attentive to our prayers. In verses 2 and 5, Jonah speaks of God's continued presence in suffering. Look at verse 2, or verse 3 rather. He says, you cast me into the deep and into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. And look at what he says. And all of your waves, not the waves of the sea, he gives possession to God. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. So what he's saying is, my suffering was ordained by God. My suffering isn't an accident. My suffering isn't random. My being in the fish isn't just a happenstance. God did this. Those are God's waves. Those are God's billows. This is God casting me there. I didn't end up here randomly. God cast me here. I think it's a huge thing to acknowledge God is the one who's present with us in our suffering, right? It's in his prayer. And in verse 9, Jonas acknowledges at the very end of his prayer, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. He acknowledges the really mysterious reality that salvation is God's prerogative. Like salvation belongs to the Lord. The, the reason that salvation is even on the table, the reason that salvation is even a thing, even though sometimes we feel entitled to it, the reason that salvation is even possible is because God's made it possible. It's God's prerogative. We can't barter for it. We can't earn it. We don't negotiate for it. You can't trick God into doing it. It's God's prerogative. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He realizes this. He's in a fish. You can't get yourself out of that place. If I'm getting out of this place, God's doing it, right? Salvation belongs to the Lord. These are some really beautiful things in his prayer. So here's a couple of things I want us to say about this. Jonah reminds us that God is eager to deliver us when we call on him. You've you got to hear that this morning. From Jonah's prayer, God is eager to deliver us when we call on him. One of the things that you pick up from Jonah's prayer, remember, this is a renegade prophet who's running from God in a fugitive way, who's got, he literally says in verse five, he's got weeds wrapped around his head. He's got seaweed. Uh, he's entangled in seaweed from his own self-inflicted stupid rebellion, and God hears his prayer. What you pick up from his prayer is that God is way more eager to hear our prayers than we are to pray them. God is way more eager to hear our prayers. He knows what's on Jonah's lips before he prays this prayer, but he still wants Jonah to say it so that Jonah knows he's been heard. And the same is true for you. God knows what you're gonna pray even before you ever pray it, but he still wants you to pray it and say it out loud, say it in your heart so that you know you've been heard. It's a big deal. And it ought to shock us. I think one of the things we ought to see from Jonah, it ought to shock us the way we consider how, how eager God is to hear our prayers and the way that we're so reluctant to offer them up sometimes. That ought to shock us when we see this prayer. Like, if God is willing to hear this fugitive prophet at his worst, at his ugliest, if God is willing to hear him then, then how much more is he willing to hear his blood-bought saints who look to him in trust? It ought to shock us how eager God is to hear us, yet how reluctant we are to pray, right? So these are some beautiful things about Jonah's prayer, things to pull out, things to, to mine out and to understand, but, but follow me here. There's also a problem with his prayer, and that's the biggest reality of what's going on here. A closer look at Jonah's prayer, and this is something I never even saw until this week, a closer look at Jonah's prayer shows that what's going on here, although there's some right and beautiful things that he's saying, 
it's at its heart a manipulative religious game he's playing with God. And here's what, here's, again, this is what messed me up. So he says so many beautiful things. God is with me in my suffering. God hears me in my distress. Salvation does belong to the Lord. So he's saying right things, but now here's the second piece. What's the problem? What is he not saying? Notice in his prayer, there's nothing about his rebellion. Nothing. He doesn't acknowledge why he's in the fish. He doesn't acknowledge what landed him there. He doesn't acknowledge, God, I've been running from you. I've been running around on you. I prefer my way over yours. God, I don't want to follow you. He doesn't acknowledge any of that. He doesn't acknowledge his sin. He doesn't acknowledge it before God. He doesn't even acknowledge sin at all. (laughs) None of that. The closest Jonah gets to repentance is in verse 8. Look at what it says. Those who pay regard to vain idols, so those who worship other things than God, it says they forsake their hope of steadfast love. But notice, it's those people. I don't do that. I don't chase after vain idols. I I, I don't chase after other things. I'm a Hebrew. Remember he said that to the sailors. Uh, I'm a Hebrew. I fear God who made heaven and earth. No, you don't, Jonah. That's why this storm is happening. Right? Right? Those people, sin is not my problem. Sin is all those other people's problem out there. Those people chase after vain idols and they forsake their hope of steadfast love. That's the problem of the Ninevites. It's not my problem, it's their problem. And then most of all, worst of all, verse nine, look at what he says. He says, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you, God. And what I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It seems right in English. When you look at the Hebrew, the original language, what Jonah was saying is, God, if you get me out of the back of this cop car, I'll worship you forever. God, just make the pain stop. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's like he's doting on God just to get what he wants. I don't want you... I don't want to go to Nineveh. My heart hasn't changed. I just don't want to hang out with this bad breath anymore. This fish stinks. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So you look at that and you go, man, unless we forget the point, track with me here. This is important for us because remember, Jonah shows up to us like a mirror. We're looking in the mirror when we hear this prayer, right? And so this, is, this has everything to do with Midwestern Bible Belt Christianity. This is, this, this is all over us. This is all over every one of us. This is the air we breathe, prayers like this. This is absolutely what's going on. We've talked about it before. It's, called, it's an approach to God called moral therapeutic deism. And here's what that means. Where we take the beauty and the holiness and the grandeur of what it means to have God sovereign over all of us, and we reduce that down to what God is after is moralism. He's just after external behavior modifications. Just don't do the wrong stuff. Do all the right stuff. Be a better person next time. Try better. And that's all Christianity is about. Just moral, therapeutic. I don't want God involved in my life, but I do want him to be there as my therapist who tells me he'll never leave me or forsake me, that he'll provide for me, that he'll protect me, that he'll bless me, that nothing can ever separate me from his love. I want all of those promises, but I don't want him involved. Right? Moral, external behavior modification, therapeutic, 
deism, a view of God where he's there, he's the creator, but he's not involved until we need him. Right? So deism says, God, I don't want you speaking into my life. I just want you there to keep me from getting into trouble if trouble should ever come. I just want you there to comfort me should life ever hurt. Right? And so these are the games we play. These are absolutely the games that Jonah's playing with God. God, I have no interest in you, but I'll shape up if you ship me out and I'll give you my life. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It has all the trappings of beauty, but his heart is shallow and it's hollow and it has not changed regardless of what's happened these last three days. And so these are the games we play. And so just just in case you're going, not me, I don't play those kind of games with God. Let's see, I've got a few examples. So here's the first one. We'll call it the moral game. So here's what the moral game looks like. The moral game says God confronts you in an area of your life. He speaks into an area. He addresses you in an area. He's asking you to to walk away from something. And instead of actually dealing with God in that area of your life, what you choose instead is just to start making promises, start making resolutions, start making, uh, you know, commitments, Uh, start start like, uh, I'm going to go buy a new journal and I'm going to be super disciplined. I'm, you know what, I'm going go to I'm go get a new Bible today, and it's going to be awesome. It's going to have that soft leather on it, and I'm going to read it, and I'm going to go online, and I'm going to get a Bible reading plan. And you know what, I'm going to go to Frontline, and I'm going to go to the back of the church, and I'm going to go to the Connect table, and I'm going to get in a community group, and I'm never going to miss it. I'm going to lead a community group, and I'm going to have so many commitments and so much discipline, I'll probably even get on a diet or something, right? And you start making all these commitments with God, all these resolutions, You don't want to deal with your junk. You just want to show him, listen, I can make up for this. I can make up for this. I promise I can turn this thing around. I promise you're not going to regret having forgiven me. I can can show you, right? So this is the moral game. The problem with the moral game, even though you'll sing songs, even though you'll pray prayers, even though you'll come to church, even though you'll listen to sermons, even though you'll praise Jesus with your hashtags, even though the problem with the moral game is you're actually making less of Jesus. You're actually making less of Jesus. And here's what I mean. Galatians 2.21, listen to what it says. It says, if righteousness could be gained through the law, if righteousness could be gained through your commitments and your morals and your traditional values, if righteousness could be gained through that stuff, then it says, Christ died for no purpose. And so when you want to try to prove it to God, look at all the good stuff I'm doing. Look at all the commitments I'm making. Look at all the New Year's resolutions I'm keeping. Look at the fact that my discipline is so upright If you could gain righteousness with God through that stuff, then his son did not need to die. It was divine child abuse, but it wasn't. And so when you say, God, I can do it, you're actually bypassing Jesus and saying that sacrifice is worthless. That's the problem with the moral game. Here's the second game we play. I call it the therapy game, right? The therapy game. And here's what the therapy game looks like. It's kind of like slogan Christianity. 
You don't want God really involved in your life. You don't want him speaking into your money. You don't want him speaking into your sexuality. You don't want him speaking into your career. You don't want him speaking into your relationships. You don't want him speaking into any area of your life that really matters for you, but you want him there as sort of this slogan motivator, right? So it's the kind of, I want, I want slogans on my coffee cups. I want bumper stickers. I want wall art. I want Jesus there as my motivational life coach. And so he reminds me with all these promises that I'm awesome. I want Jesus to tell me that I'm awesome. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. I want God as my therapist. I want a really powerful therapist who's on my side who reminds me that I'm worth it. I don't want him involved in stuff, but I do want him to remind me that I can have a clear head today. Problem with that is that we end up reducing God and the worship of God to actually the worship of self. When you're only concerned with God is to make yourself comfortable in life, then what you're really worshiping is yourself, regardless of what your songs say. Right? Regardless of what your songs say. And then you're making God this cosmic bellboy in the sky who's out to run your own errands. It's the therapy game. It's a really popular approach to religion. Here's the third game we play. I call it the bodyguard game. Bodyguard game says... I want to do enough religious activities to stay in good standing with God, have some good rapport with him so that I can keep him at arm's length so that whenever should I need him, life gets hard, finances are tough, relationships go south, uh, a bad doctor's report. I don't want him really involved in my life, but I'll do enough religious stuff. I might have some church attendance just so that Whenever the going gets hard, then I have God. Then I can pull him in, and all of a sudden, he can be my bodyguard. He can protect me. He can fend off the bad stuff. I can hold on to protecting promises. I can hold on to, right? You see it? The problem, the problem with bodyguard religion, the problem with the bodyguard game, is that in the end, you make God your own personal assistant. And so when you think about these, when we think about these games we play, when you think about these religious approaches to God, let me ask you a question. And this is the question that just stings me. Because if I describe any of this, by the way, with any accuracy, it's because I play these games too. Like I play these games too. And so here's the question that I just had to stew over on myself is in any of these scenarios, who's functionally God? <laughs> right? So, so in the moral game, we're God. Because what we want to do is take our good deeds, take our efforts, take our discipline. Look at God, how hard I've worked for you. And now we use that as leverage with him to get what we want. We use that as leverage. As though we're now the one that has the upper hand in the scenario. In the therapy game, God is only so good to us as he reminds us that we're awesome. The second I feel bad, the second I feel guilty, the second, right, the second my guilt isn't managed, God's not good for me. I'll go just find my own way. And then in the bodyguard game, in the bodyguard game, we reduce God to our personal assistant who just runs our own errands. <laughs> and so you go, man, now we're all in this boat, right? We're all in this boat. And you go, so man, I'm, I'm playing a lot of games. 
Jonah's playing games with God. We, we do things not because we really want God, but because we just want his stuff. And so whatever it takes to treat you like a lucky rabbit's foot and rub you the right way, whatever it takes to get the genie out of the bottle, do I have to sing songs enough? Do I have to wipe my knuckles enough? Do I have to grimace my face enough? Do I have to attend church enough? Whatever I've got to do, just make the pain stop. I don't want you. I don't want my heart transformed. I don't want new life. I just want the pain to stop. So when you you see that, here's the last piece of today, and we're almost done. What does God do with us? Like, how does God respond to Jonah when he's just playing games with his prayer, trying to dress it up the right way as though he's going to get away with it? What does God do? Let's look at what he does in verse 10. It says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto the dry land. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. So what does God do with Jonah when he prays this fake prayer? He delivers him. Like, do you feel the tension of that? He delivers him. Now, if this were you and me, and this is what we knew about Jonah, we're going, nah, leave him in the fish. He's going to stay there a while and think about what he's doing, right? That's exactly how we, th- we approach it. You see, we want justice in every situation except our own, right? We want grace. They get justice. What God does, Jonah offers him this trumped-up prayer, and God delivers him. Like, you've got to feel the scandal of that or you're missing grace, right? You're missing it. And so here's one of the the commentaries I read this week was pretty funny. It said, the only obedient person in Jonah chapter two was the fish. I loved it. Like the only person who's honoring to God and responds to his authority was the fish. In fact, it goes, it went on to say, um, the reason the fish vomited him is because it couldn't handle the repugnant hypocrisy inside of him. Get that mess out. And so here's the crazy thing. So God delivers him. God doesn't respond to Jonah. He he talks to the fish. Jonah gives this prayer. God doesn't talk back to Jonah. He talks to the fish. Fascinating. And then look at verse 1 of chapter 3. And then, if that wasn't enough, and then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. What? So it would be one thing if he vomited him out and it's like, oh yeah, leave that, leave that ridiculous guy with seaweed all over himself and fish guts. Leave him to himself. Let him go clean himself up and on with his life. He's not even worth more time. That would be one thing. But then the word of the Lord comes to him a second time and the word of the Lord isn't a word of judgment. <laughs> it's not judgment. It's actually a call forward to go partner with him in kingdom mission a second time. He gives more grace. More grace. So first it's grace, and then it's like more grace, and then it's more grace. And so you step back from this, and it causes you to ask a question. Does God know what he's doing? Does God not know that if you treat people like that, like that, they're just going to take advantage of you. 
They're going to keep playing religious games. And spoiler alert, that's exactly what happens to the rest of Jonah. His heart never turns. His heart never changes. The book of Jonah ends with a question. Not, resu- not, not a nice little bow on top in Jonah's like Shekinah glory with a question saying, God, just kill me. And so you, you feel the tension. God, do you know, people? if you treat people like that, they're just going to take advantage of you. But listen, think about our own lives for a second. How often has God blessed you despite the fact that you've been prayerless? How often has God intervened and stepped in despite the fact that the trajectory of your life has been a pattern of rebellion and disregard? When those moments happen, the response is not, man, I cannot believe I got away with it. You can't even wait for my next game I'm going to play. If that's the response you give God to the grace he gives, you don't understand grace. You don't understand grace. And the Bible warns violently against presuming on grace. It says God will not be mocked. He won't be mocked. But when those moments happen, blessing despite prayerlessness, intervention despite rebellion, when those moments happen, our hearts ought to melt and say, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. This is not what should happen right now. Here's what's crazy. So if you're feeling the scandal, we're almost done. The book of Acts, the book of Acts says it's actually the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not the fist of God. It's not the punishment of God. It's not the you better or else of God. It's the kindness. It's the lavish grace. It's the why is this happening? This shouldn't be happening. How is this happening? How can he be so good? What kind of God is this? How am I here? It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so ultimately, here's what God does to deal with the problem of Jonah and the problem of us. He sends a greater Jonah. He sends Jesus. And listen to the parallels between the two. Jesus suffers in the belly of death, not for his own sins, but for the sins of religious game players and irreligious mockers. Jonah, he's in the fish, he's in the belly of death for his own sin. Now Jesus, he goes to the belly of death sins like you and me. This is religious people. He goes into the belly of death for religious people and for irreligious mockers. The greater Jonah wasn't released from the depths of the grave because of repugnant hypocrisy. That's why Jonah was released. I can't even handle your hypocrisy. Get out of here. Jesus was released from the grave because the grave acknowledged, I'm not worthy to hold the author of life. I'm not worthy to hold you. And so when we end today, here's the the reality we all have to hear. Jonah was actually right at one point. Salvation does belong to the Lord. That's a right thing to say. Salvation belongs. And what we see in the greater Jonah, what we see in the greater Jonah, Jesus, is that he offers it to anyone. Jesus came to save church people. He came to save the religious from the silly games of their religion. Us, you, me, 
And he also came to save the irreligious, those who could care less about the games and are just making up their own. The true Jonah comes forward and says, salvation belongs to the Lord, and I'm now throwing it out to any who would look and trust. So the question I want to ask as we end today is where are you playing games with God? Moral, therapy, bodyguard, there's others. What's your game? Where are you functionally saying to God, I'm not sure that I want you, I just want you to make the pain stop. I'm not sure that I want a transformed life, I just want you to give me something different. I'm not sure that I want you, I just want your stuff. Where are you playing games? Let's stand together.